following is a Sunday sermon from Hope Presbyterian Church of New Braunfels, a community of people gathered to connect to God, to each other, and to their neighbors. For more information, visit www.hopenb.com. Well, my name is Derek McCollum. Um, I am the, one of the pastors here, and if I haven't met you, I'd love to. We're glad that you're here. We are, uh, in the, we've been in the middle of a, a series on the book of Nehemiah. We're launching our Grow Deep campaign uh, this morning, but we're continuing our series in Nehemiah. So we're in chapter 5, in the second half of chapter 5 today. Mike actually so wonderfully last week ta- uh, taught us on the first half of chapter 5 what it means to be just, what upholding justice is all about. Today we're going to talk about generosity, generosity. So if you will open your Bible, if you've got it with you, to Nehemiah chapter 5, you can follow along in your own Bible or you can follow along on the screen above. I'll be reading starting in verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work of this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men. Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on the people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people." Friends, this is God's Word. He gives it to us because He loves us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask today that You would open our hearts to know You more deeply, that You would open our eyes that we might see You and see Jesus in Your Word here, that You would open our ears that we would hear what You have to say to us, and the Lord in all of this, that we might love You more deeply that we might follow you more fully. Lord, show us your ways this morning, we pray in your son's name. Amen. We, uh, my family and I lived in St. Louis for three years, and amongst the uh, many really beautiful buildings in St. Louis, it's a really beautiful city, uh, one that stands out is the St. Louis Cathedral Basilica. If you've ever visited or lived in St. Louis, maybe you've seen this building. It is an enormous Catholic church. And if you see it from the outside, um, it is, it's imposing, it's big, it feels really substantial. It has a certain beauty to it simply from its imposing nature, but really the magic happens on the inside. In fact, as you go into this cathedral, you notice maybe first of all the floor. It's beautiful, it's shiny, it's marble. And it's all throughout, really, the whole place, this beautiful marble floor. But, you know, marble floors, as beautiful as they are, you can find them in other places, right? Maybe you've seen other marble floors in in churches or even office buildings. But in this place, the real magic happens on the ceiling. 
In fact, if you look up onto the ceiling, you will see mosaic tiles like you've never seen before. The entirety of the ceiling of this cathedral is covered in mosaic tiles. Forty-one and a half million tiles cover the ceiling of this church. It is one of the largest collections of mosaic tiles in the entire world. And they are gorgeous. They are just um, covering the ceiling with these beautiful pictures of biblical stories or biblical themes. And you can't help but just gaze at them and just in awe and wonder at how majestic and how beautiful they are. In fact, if you walked into that cathedral and you stood there looking at the floor most of the time, people would wonder what in the world is wrong with you because it's actually the ceiling that is supposed to draw our attention. Our eyes are meant to be lifted toward the beauty of the ceiling. God's law actually works in a very similar way. God's law works in that similar way in that there is a floor and there is a ceiling. In fact, the floor is there for some really important things, some really good things. The floor of God's law keeps things from falling apart. It's the place that says, listen, you can't go below this because below this, there's going to be chaos. It's going to be terrible, right? It, it's good that we have laws of property. If my neighbor keeps parking his boat in my front yard, it's good that I can say, listen, there's a property line. There are laws here that keep your boat out of my front yard. And of course, the laws of our country are beneficial to us. They provide that floor that I can't just go around punching anybody that I want to just because I want to. That would be chaos. So the law actually keeps us from the chaos. That's the floor. But here's the beauty of God's law, is that the, God, the law, the, the floor of God's law is meant to actually point us toward the ceiling of love. Let me say that again. The floor of the law is meant to draw us to the ceiling of love. And so just like if you were to walk around in that beautiful cathedral and stare at the ground the whole time, you'd be missing the whole point, the same is true actually about the way that Christians are meant to live their lives, that God's law is meant to draw our, our eyes upward to the ceiling of His love and our love in response. Let me just give you a couple of examples of that. God's law says in the Ten Commandments, do not murder. That's the floor. But the ceiling is different, right? The ceiling is love your neighbor as yourself. We find that even before the New Testament in the book of Leviticus, that's the ceiling. So the floor is don't murder, but the ceiling is much different. Love your neighbor. Or how about, the, how about God's uh, commandment not to steal? That's the floor. Do not steal. We find the ceiling, though, in passages like Acts chapter 2 where we see uh, the young community of the church together sharing everything that they have in common. They're giving to one another as they have need, is what Luke tells us. Well, there's the ceiling. The floor in God's law is do not commit adultery. If you are married, you cannot break your covenant vow with your spouse by uniting yourself physically to someone else. That's the floor. But the ceiling we find in Ephesians 5, where Paul tells husbands, love your wives like Jesus loved the church, laying himself down for her, sacrificing himself for her. That's the ceiling. So we have the floor that is meant to actually point us to the ceiling, 
the floor of God's love that is actually meant to shape and point us to the, excuse me, the floor of God's law meant to shape and point us to the ceiling of love. So what does all of that have to do with Nehemiah chapter 5? Well, actually here in Nehemiah 5, we're seeing that process take place. Nehemiah is actually painting a picture of us of what it looks like to move from the floor to the ceiling. If you remember from last week, uh, Mike taught us from the first half of chapter 5, and we, we heard things like this. Earlier in chapter 5, we got this, Nehemiah 5, 6, and 7. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words, so I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. Nehemiah was angry because uh, God's people were exacting interest from one another. That law comes from Deuteronomy 23. Here's what it says. You shall not charge interest or loans to your brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Okay, so earlier in chapter 5, Nehemiah was uh, de declaring to God's people that they had broken the floor. They had gone below the floor. They had broken the law. They were, uh, they were um, charging interest to their brothers. They were making themselves rich off of their brothers. Now, why is this happening? Well, God's law is there, actually, remember, to point us to the ceiling of God's love. And so even these interesting laws that sometimes we don't understand about whether or not you should charge interest, they're not actually there to talk about profit, believe it or not, not to limit profit, but actually to limit abuse. I, listen, listen to this. This is um, the biblical commentator Christopher Wright. This is what he says about these laws. Biblical justice goes beyond a calculus of rights and deserts. Because it is fundamentally relational, it always blends into compassion for those who are vulnerable. So in biblical economics, wealth that God has enabled us to produce must always be held and used with a compassionate heart and hand. There are those whose needs are more urgent than your rights of ownership on whose behalf God commands very practical compassion. What Wright is saying is that the floor of God's law is actually supposed to be pointing us to the ceiling of God's love. See, this is the way that it was supposed to work in Israel. Remember, we're in an agrarian society. So if someone who is poor who has a very small field or who has very few animals is actually trying to grow crops or raise livestock to feed their family or to trade for other things, if there's a famine or if there's bad weather or if there's something really terrible that happens, guess what? They can't actually feed themselves or their family. So then they go to one of their brothers, one of their countrymen, and they say, hey, I'm in need. I'm destitute. Can you lend me some grain? Can you lend me one of your animals? Can you help me out? And I've got a couple of options, right, if I'm that person. I can give of my own heart, or I can say, you know what, now I see an opportunity. Here's someone who needs me to lend them money. Here's an opportunity for me to actually make a little bit on this transaction. Here's me and my ability to take advantage of someone in need. And God's law prohibits that, not because it prohibits making profit, but because it prohibits the taking advantage of others in need. 
right? That's me saying, I see a need, and that need will fill my greed. I get to take advantage of someone else and boost me by lowering them. God's law prohibits that. God's law prohibits the disadvantaging others in order to advantage me. But what's so beautiful actually about what's happening here in Nehemiah is that Nehemiah is going above the floor. Nehemiah is actually practicing generosity. He is proclaimed in the first half of chapter 5 justice. He is proclaimed, here's what justice looks like. It means keeping away from not going below that floor. But here in the second half of chapter 5, he is exhibiting and proclaiming generosity. See, justice says, I'm not going to disadvantage someone else in order to advantage myself. That's justice. Generosity is different, though. Generosity says, I'm going to disadvantage myself in order to advantage another. I'm going to give of myself in order to make another flourish. And Nehemiah is actually showing us what it looks like to move from floor to ceiling. Of course, the ceiling is a lot more difficult than the floor. In fact, let me tell you this. If you would like to become a moralist really quickly, live your life on the floor. Live your life right down on the floor of God's law, right? And you will become a moralist pretty much overnight. You will start thinking, well, I've never committed adultery. That must mean I'm a really great husband. Or I've never committed murder. That must mean I'm a really loving neighbor. Or you know what? I've never stolen anything. That must mean I'm really the perfect community citizen. And you will come to actually believe that your righteousness is built through your ability to not go below the floor. And friends, it'll probably be pretty easy. It's not that hard to figure out how not to murder people. But we are not called to stay on the floor, are we? We're called to move toward the ceiling. And that, friends, takes a lot. In fact, we actually see in this passage that Nehemiah gives up quite a bit, that moving from floor to ceiling is very costly. Uh, heard Warren Buffett actually say something amazing. This is after he had given $30 billion to the Gates Foundation, after he had given $30 billion with a buh, $30 billion, he said this. He said, you know what? My gift actually didn't really change my life much. I still go to all the movies I want to go to. I still eat at the same restaurants I used to eat at. It didn't really change my lifestyle. He said, but you know what? For people who give in a way that changes their lifestyle, that's true generosity. That's real generosity because it costs them something. And Buffett's right. In fact, it's exhibited here, I think, by Nehemiah. Look at this first thing, is that it takes actually giving up our own rights. Nehemiah gives up his own rights in order for the benefit of others. Look at verse 14 again. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Now, what's that all about? Well, the food allowance of the governor was actually his salary. It was the way that the governor uh, got paid. 
If you were the governor of a province in the Persian Empire, then you actually collected for the treasury, the national treasury of Persia, and you also collected a little bit more on top of that for your own benefit. You were, again, given the freedom to collect taxes that would be sent back to Persia and put in the treasury, the national treasury, but you also were both legally able and even expected to get a little bit more that would increase your own treasury that would build your own personal wealth, that would actually give you the kind of standing in society that a governor should have. It was Nehemiah's legal right to collect the food allowance. And what he says is, I'm going to give up my legal right in order for the benefit of my countrymen. Generosity requires sacrifice, doesn't it? It requires us actually giving up sometimes things that we are actually owed, sometimes things that we actually have the right to, things that we may have legal, maybe even moral justification for, it's giving up of those rights for the benefit of another. Secondly, Nehemiah chooses actually to refuse the cultural norm. In fact, generosity will almost always call us to this, to refusing what is culturally normative. You heard him say this actually in verse 15. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people, and they took from them their daily ration of 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. What Nehemiah is saying is, hey, this is the norm. This is kind of the way that it went. Not only was it legally there, but this is what people normally did. In fact, that norm carried through a long time. When you get to the New Testament, that's the same way that the Roman tax collectors are working, isn't it? Is that that they're collecting some for the Romans, but they're collecting a lot for themselves as well. That's just what was normal. It was the way that things went. You know, we have some normal ways of working as well, don't we? When I was in campus ministry, the conversation that I would have all the time, over and over, was with students who would come to me and they would say, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I don't know what I'm going to study. I don't know kind of how to engage this thing that God has called me to. I'm here at college. I don't really know why I'm at college. What am I supposed to study? What am I supposed to do for a living? And before we could answer that question, we actually had to go backward and start to break down some of the cultural assumptions at work. Because what usually happened was those students would arrive on campus with this assumption. What I do is that I leverage my abilities against whatever the world can give me in order to get me what I want, right? I use whatever the world has in order to give me what I want. That's the normal practice. Get what you can out of the world so that you can get what you want out of the world. But we have to reframe that as Christians. And for those students, we had to sit down and say, no, no, we have to actually start from a very different place to look at this in a very different angle with a totally different paradigm, a paradigm that says, who has God made me to be? Where has He placed me? And how can I actually steward those gifts for His glory and the benefit of those around me? That's a radically different paradigm, isn't it? Not what can the world give me, what can I get out of the world in order to get what I want, but what has God actually given me? that I might steward well for His glory and the benefit of those around me. It's a very different cultural paradigm. And generosity, if we're going to see it worked in our hearts, 
is going to require us rejecting the cultural paradigm around us. Here's the third thing, though, I think that it costs Nehemiah, is that he actually gives at his own expense. It costs him sacrificing his own stuff. Listen to verse 18. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Part of the job of the governor was to entertain a bunch of people. He would host kind of the, the nobles of society, the, the upper class, the ruling class, would always kind of be in his house, and he was feeding them all the time. Also, would oftentimes host kind of traveling dignitaries. The Persian Empire was vast. And so you might have somebody who was in Egypt who was actually traveling to Persia and would come through Jerusalem and say, well, I need a place to stay. They would stay with the governor, and the governor would provide the food and the housing and the place to be such that he was actually killing an ox every day <laughs> and six sheep and six birds. And they were drinking so much wine that every 10 days the wine flasks had to be refilled. It's a lot going on. And what Nehemiah says is, I went ahead and I actually just provided that out of, out of my own. I didn't ask for more. I didn't actually take the allowance given by the governor. I provided it, and it actually cost me. You see what he's doing? He's disadvantaging himself in order to see others flourish. The floor was justice. Don't disadvantage others in order to make yourself flourish. The ceiling is generosity. Disadvantage yourself in order that others might flourish. And why does he do this? This is so important for us. There's this one little verse that's just kind of stuck right in the middle of this passage that gives us his motivation. It's verse 15. Look at it again. I did not do so because of the fear of the Lord. Nehemiah's whole reason for acting the way that he does, the reason that he sacrifices, the reason that he, it's actually costly and he's willing to go through costly things is the fear of the Lord. Now, that phrase can be confusing for us sometimes. We hear fear, right? And it's, it's Halloween, right? And so we're talking about fear like it's scary, right? It's not the way that the Bible actually talks about the fear of the Lord. The overwhelming usage in the Bible when it talks about fearing God is not to be afraid of Him. It's actually to worship Him and follow in His ways, to be shaped by Him, to be conformed to who God is in His character so that we might actually see generosity worked in our hearts because God is generous, so that we might see love worked in our hearts because God is loving, so that we might actually see beauty worked in our hearts because God is beautiful, right? It's to be shaped by God's character and to follow Him all of our days. Nehemiah has soaked himself in God's love, in His mercy, in His holiness, in His justice, in His generosity, and it's starting to actually take hold of his heart. He's being shaped by it, so it just pours out of him. See, when we are shaped by the character of the Lord, we no longer want to sit in the moralist position on the floor. We actually want to move toward the ceiling. We want to resemble and exemplify this generous, wonderful God who has given us everything. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, why are we talking about this here? 
Like, I, I thought this was a book about building a wall. Isn't this a building book? Isn't this actually, you know, some leadership examples that we can take from this, right? Well, yeah, it's a building book, and yeah, there's some great leadership examples. Why are we getting this pause right in the middle of the building project to hear about generosity? Well, interestingly enough, actually a lot of scholars believe that chapter 5 was originally probably at the end, kind of as a part of chapter 13 in Nehemiah. If you look at the end of Nehemiah, you hear him discussing a lot of these kind of things, ethical kind of concerns, where Nehemiah talks about Sabbath breaking, and he talks about idolatrous types of intermarriage, and he talks about things like this, and he's calling people on it, and chapter 5 feels like it fits in there pretty well. But I love that it's here. I love that we get to pause and talk about it now, because it reminds us that what's going on in Nehemiah is not a wall-building project, but a heart-building project. It reminds us that what God's law is always supposed to do, what God's Word is always supposed to do, what being shaped by God is always supposed to do for us is to shape our hearts to be like Him. We have, um, we've hired actually a consultant that's helping us with this Grow Deep campaign. And he said something to me almost every time that we've met together. He has repeated this phrase. He said, you know, this is not going to be a financial journey with spiritual implications. It's going to be a spiritual journey with financial implications. You hear the difference? What we are doing is not a financial initiative with some spiritual implications along the way. What we are doing is a spiritual journey with financial implications. The same thing is going on in Nehemiah. I think what God is telling us here, especially by placing this chapter 5 right in the middle of this building project, is, hey, this isn't a building project with some spiritual implications. This is a spiritual project with some building implications. This is a heart-shaping project that, yes, will pour over into every area of your life, and yes, will include things like rebuilding these broken walls and building up our city. Yes, very practical things. And yes, what we want to do in this Grow Deep initiative is we'd love to have the money to be able to buy a permanent home. We'd love to be able to root ourselves in our city. We think it's important. We think it's important for us to actually plant in a place and be there for a really, really long time. So there are some physical, physical things that we really want to see happen. But it is secondary to what we want the Lord to do primarily in us. And that's to change our hearts, to make us more like Him, to see a generous God who shapes us in generosity to see a loving God who teaches us His ways as we sang before, shows us how we should love each other, how we should give for one another, how we should weep with each other, how we should celebrate with each other. We want to see the Lord shape our hearts. And you know, that's actually supposed to be the role of people like Nehemiah. We're seeing Nehemiah lead in this beautiful way. In fact, some commentators have said, you know what, Nehemiah is the best king in Israel's history. It's funny because he wasn't a king. There were no more kings in Israel's history at this point. But Nehemiah is acting like a good king. He's doing what a good king is supposed to do, actually to protect the floor, God's law, and to lead God's people in moving toward the ceiling, 
to see the people have their hearts shaped to be more like the Lord. That's what the kings were supposed to do. And the reason, by the way, that they're in captivity overcome by Persia is that those kings, almost all of them failed in that. Nehemiah is actually doing what the good king is meant to do. He's also, of course, pointing us toward the great king, isn't he? The true king. The king of the church, Jesus Christ, who has given everything that we might have everything. Who had perfect legal right to not only stay enthroned in his throne, but actually to judge you and I, all of us, in our sin. But we read in Philippians 2 that Jesus actually humbled himself, that he left his throne, that he came to become one of us, that he could have claimed his right as being fully God, but instead he emptied himself, becoming a servant, even humbled himself to death on a cross. Jesus has given up his legal rights in order that we might be made whole. Jesus has worked completely in a countercultural way. He's rejected the way that the culture would work things, right? He came as a king riding in on a donkey on these palms, and everybody was you know, proclaiming, you know, hallelujah, the king is here, hosanna to the son of David. But Jesus came in not on a steaming war horse, but on a little foal, on a donkey. Jesus told his disciples, listen, if you want to be first, here's the thing you need to do, be a servant. If you want to be first, what you need to do is be last. And then when he showed them, he washed their feet. The king of the universe, the creator of feet, washed the feet of his disciples. Jesus has shown us in his own actions what it means to be countercultural. And of course, Jesus has given of himself. It cost him everything to lay his life down for us so that we might be made right. The one who has given himself at his own expense poured himself out. The one who was rich has become poor so that we might become rich and so that we might be shaped by that generous love. If you've never heard those words before, let me invite you to dig into them this morning. Come talk to me or to Mike or one of our elders. Grab somebody beside you and say, what is this amazing news that I just heard? that Jesus, the King of all, would actually sacrifice Himself so that we, those who don't deserve His love and mercy, might be made right with Him, might inherit eternal life, might be welcomed into His throne room and sit around at His table. And friends, that is the motivation you and I have to move from floor to ceiling, to be transformed by the generous love and mercy of our Savior Jesus, that we might become those who are loving and merciful to others. May God enable us to do that even now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for this wonderful example of Nehemiah that we get to see, proclaiming both justice and generosity. But we're even so much more thankful for not just the example, but the actions of Jesus who has done what we could never do for ourselves, who has given of a himself that we might actually receive something that we could never get for ourselves. Thank you for the beauty of the gospel. We ask now that it would transform our hearts, that, that you would make us loving and merciful and generous, that you would do so by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.